Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's show talks about a gruesome discovery by a lockkeeper at Salford, a small village between Bath and Bristol on the 27th of February, 1875. Amongst the other things that happened in 1875, Henry Cavendish Jones convinces the All England Croquet Club to replace a croquet court with a lawn tennis court. And that was in Wimbledon. I think you can all guess how that went. On January the 1st of 1875, the Midland Railway of England abolishes the second-class passenger category, leaving first-class and third-class. Other British railway companies follow Midland's lead during the rest of the year. Eventually, third-class is renamed second-class in 1956. On June the 4th, two American colleges play each other in arguably the first game of college football, Tufts University and Harvard University, at Jarvis Field in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On August the 25th, Captain Matthew Webb becomes the first person to swim the English Channel. And on December the 4th, notorious New York City politician Boss Tweed escapes from prison and flees to Cuba and then to Spain. But as for our story, that happened in February. At an inquest that commenced on Monday the 1st of March, by Mr Robert Biggs, the deputy coroner for Somersetshire at Saltford, a village some seven miles from Bristol, between Bristol and Bath, a shocking case of murder was discussed. The lockkeeper at Saltford, a man named Samuel Webber, was standing on the bank of the River Avon on the afternoon of Saturday the 27th of February, when his attention was attracted by seeing some object floating down from the stream. It didn't take him long to realise that it was the body of a human being, and carefully he watched the corpse as it was borne down the river, waiting for an opportunity to bring it to the bank. The body was carried over the weir and then floated sufficiently near to the shore to enable Weber to seize it, and he succeeded in passing a rope around the inanimate form and afterwards fastening it to a tree. He immediately set off to get the assistance of Police Officer Baker, a constable stationed at Kingsham and the pair got the body out of the water and found that it was that of a young woman, of short stature, stoutly built and about 24 years of age. The 
corpse presented an appearance which led to the conclusion that the poor creature had met with a violent death. Across the forehead was a terrible gash, from which blood had evidently flowed freely, and the bridge of the nose there was another wound, and both eyes were blackened. Word of the Week And the first word for 2021 is... Rizzle, which is a 19th century English verb for something we've all done, especially around this time of year. It means to relax and digest after a large meal. The unfortunate woman's body was immediately taken to a stable belonging to Mr Uriah Ferris and information of the find was given to Mr Biggs, the deputy coroner and the inquiry into the cause of death of the poor woman was opened on the following Monday afternoon at the Crown Inn in Saltford when evidence was given by Samuel Webber, the lockkeeper who made the grisly find. Uh, I'm the lockkeeper at Saltford. On Saturday afternoon, between two and three o'clock, I saw the body of a woman floating down the River Avon, near the Saltford Weir. I saw it go over the weir, and then I got the body out of the flow of the river and tied it to a tree, and then gave the information to the police at Keenstrom. PC Baker returned to me and got the body out and carried it to Mr Ferris's stable, where it now lies. Next to give evidence was PC Robert Baker. I'm a police constable living at Keenstrom. Saturday last, the 27th, the last witness came to me and told me of having found the body of the deceased. I went and assisted him to get it out and conveyed it to the stable where it now lies. I noticed on the forehead a cut which appeared to bleed freely after the woman was taken out of the water. I have since searched the body. The woman was dressed in a violet linsey body with a brown skirt and a blue skirt underneath it. She had nothing else but stays, brown, and a chemise, white stockings, and elastic side boots. In the right boot, we th- found three halfpence. She had no pocket in her dress or separately. I have omitted to say that she also had on a black pannier and a part of an old horse cloth, which she wore as an apron. She also wore a bonnet trimmed with black crepe and a made flower, and the brooch, produced, I found in the flower. She appeared to me to be about 24 years old. Next up was Mr John Abernathy Hicks. I am a registered surgeon living at Twerton. I have this morning examined the body of a woman now lying dead in Salford. The body is that of a young woman, apparently about 25 years old. She was short, stout and well-nourished and had black curly hair and round features. The body appears to have been in water from 10 days to a fortnight. I have found a contused, ragged wound extending from the centre of the forehead obliquely to the temple and about four and a half inches length. This penetrated to the bone through its whole length. There was another wound across the bridge of the nose, about three-eighths of an inch long, with much blackness of both eyes. The whole of the eye was quite obscured by effusion of blood beneath the membrane covering the eyeball. There were no other marks of violence whatever on the body. I have made a post-mortem examination. 
there was much blood effused under the scalp, corresponding to the wound on the forehead. There was no fracture of the skull. The membranes of the brain were congested throughout, and beneath them, on the same side as the wound, a large quantity of blood was effused, and a still larger quantity of blood at the back of the skull. The organs, the chest, were quite healthy. There was no blood on the right side of the heart, and the lungs were not congested. The abdominal organs were healthy, and the deceased was three months pregnant. My opinion is that death was caused by the blow or blows to the head, causing rupture of a vessel within the skull, and I also believe that life was extinct before the woman was placed in the water. I form this opinion on the ground of the large effusion of blood in the brain and the absence of symptoms of drowning. It was clearly a case of murder, unless some explanation could be given of the marks of violence which appeared on the corpse. During a more detailed post-mortem, Mr Abernathy Hicks said that he found neither food or liquid in the stomach, and on examining the bronchial tubes and windpipe, he also found nothing there. There was no water present. On examining the lungs again and making several incisions into them, he found that they were not congested and contained no frothy mucus, which is always present in cases of drowning. Superintendent Empson said that there was a man at the inquest who saw a female between Newton and Corston a fortnight before, arguing in rather coarse language with the man. Empson didn't want to call the man to the stage, as he felt it wouldn't help with the medical testimony. At that inquest, Mr Biggs, the coroner, directed the police to carefully preserve the articles of clothing found on the deceased and not to bury the body until it was absolutely necessary to do so, that every opportunity might be given of identifying the deceased. He also requested the police to communicate with the authorities at Bath and Weston in order that inquiries could be made as to whether any person was missing from those areas. The jury concurred with the learned coroner as to the advisability of adjournment, and the inquiry was adjourned until the 9th of March. The county police tried to obtain some clue to the identity of the woman, but their efforts proved futile. In many cases, some apparently insignificant peculiarity about the garments of the deceased furnished the starting point to the police and given clues, which had led to the detection of the criminal. The case of Charlotte Pugsley, who was murdered in Lee Woods, is one fine example. The corpse of the poor girl lay for some time without identification and the chances of recognition of the body became day by day more and more remote. The police had almost given up all hope of tracing the unfortunate creature when a minute examination of the underclothing upon the body led to the discovery of certain marks upon the stays. One of those marks was that of a firm who manufactured the article and the other the private mark of a tradesman. The clue, though slight, was closely followed up. The person who sold the stays to Charlotte Pugsley was found, and the discovery was the start of a chain of evidence which proved most conclusively the guilt of the murderer, William Beale. The county police having this case on their minds had no doubt been very careful when examining the clothes of the poor creature who had been so brutally murdered. 
The garments showed conclusively that the woman belonged to the poorer part of society. Her scanty attire and the coarseness of the materials of which they were made were evidence of this. The piece of horse cloth which she used as an apron might have been a lead to identity, and the fact that she was wearing it led them to believe that she had been employed in one of the numerous factories which were to be found between Salford and Bath. Book of the Week This week's book is called The Welkin by Lucy Kirkwood and it's set in rural Suffolk in 1759. As the country waits for Haley's Comet, Sally Poppy is sentenced to hang for a heinous murder when she claims to be pregnant. A jury of 12 matrons are taken from their housework to decide whether she's telling the truth or simply trying to escape the noose. Only one midwife, Lizzie Luke, is prepared to defend the girl. Lucy Kirkwood's play The Welkin premiered at the National Theatre in London in 2020 and was directed by James MacDonald. Eventually, a theory had been constructed that the deceased might have been living on a barge and that this would account for no notice of her disappearance having been given to the police and for her remaining unidentified for so long. But this, of course, was just a mere hypothesis, and nothing had come to light to strengthen or confirm it. It was pretty obvious that the body had been thrown into the water above Saltford Weir. But beyond that, the police didn't have anything to go on. Rumours were rife of locals saying that they thought they saw a woman resembling the deceased tramping along the road or sitting in a barge making its way up the river, when these reports were investigated, they came to nothing. It was evident that the woman did not belong to Saltford or the neighbourhood, for when the body was drawn out of the water, it was seen by most of the inhabitants of the village. And as you can expect in small villages, everyone knows everyone. So, when no one recognised her, the police concluded that she was not a local. During the Tuesday, the 2nd of March, several people from Bath went to see the body but all failed to recognise it. On behalf of the county authorities, Superintendent Emson from Temple Cloud and Mr Superintendent Morgan from Weston were investigating the matter. Mr Emson immediately sent out a description of the woman throughout the neighbourhood. Placards were extensively circulated throughout the counties of Somerset, Gloucester and Wilts. And the placards said, Found in the River Avon, Near the locks at Saltford, Saturday the 27th of February, the dead body of a woman unknown. Description about 24 years of age, about 4 feet 5 inches high, stoutly built, black curly hair, had on a violet dress body with a brown skirt and a bias skirt underneath a black pannier, and part of an old horse cloth worn as an apron, a bonnet trimmed with black crepe and mayflower with a brooch in the centre brown stays, chemise, white stockings and elastic side boots, much worn. The body appeared to have been in the water from ten days to a fortnight and on the forehead was a contused, ragged wound about four and a half length and another wound across the bridge of the nose. On the Tuesday, Inspector Berry, who is Chief of Detectives in the Bath Police, thought he had obtained a clue to the identity of the deceased 
and certainly the circumstances justified him in supposing he was on the right track. But it turned out that he was following a false trail. He learned that a woman living in one of the lowest parts of the city had expressed an opinion that she could identify the deceased, and so he took her down to Saltford to see the body. The woman, on inspecting the corpse, positively declared she recognised it as that of the daughter of a horse dealer living in Devizes, and after opening the mouth of the deceased, added that she was confirmed in her belief by the fact that the woman had a remarkably fine set of teeth, the same as the person she referred to possessed. She told the inspector that the person in question had been in a relationship with a bargeman and had left her father's house for the purpose of living with that man and came to Bath with him recently. The bargeman had lived with the woman in Bath and had a child with her. And when this woman found out that the bargeman had had many affairs, she went down to the quay on Thursday evening and shouted at him and a general quarrel took place between the two and another woman who was believed to be his lover. Acting on this information, Mr Berry went to Devizes and called at the house, occupied by the father of the woman, referred to by the witness, and to his surprise found that a letter had just been received from another daughter living in Chippenham, saying that the daughter supposed to be murdered was all right and was staying with her. A strange part of the case is that the witness from Bath was informed of the mistake she had made and said that she didn't believe it and would not believe it until she saw the woman for herself. This apparently strong clue having failed, the police felt quite at a loss what theory to pursue. But they had not given up hopes of unravelling this mystery. Their belief in the theory that the woman worked in a factory began to fade, and they are inclined to adopt the opinion that she lived with one of the bargemen travelling up and down the river. And should their hypothesis prove a correct one, some time may elapse before any clue could be obtained. The police at Trowbridge and Devizes state that the description given of the deceased tallies exactly with that of a woman in the habit of living on barges. In support of the theory that the deceased was a bargewoman, it was stated that aprons made of materials similar to that found on the body were generally worn by women of this class. On the Wednesday evening, the body of the unfortunate woman was removed to the workhouse at Kingsham. The removal led to a fresh clue. When Mr Holt, the master of the workhouse, saw the body, he said that she fitted the description of a young woman who came to the workhouse as a tramp some three weeks ago. The nurse and other inmates also said that the corpse fitted the description of the young woman, and on turning to his books, Mr Holt found that the person in question had arrived at the workhouse on February 8th, within two or three days of the time when, in accordance with medical evidence, the body was first in the water. The testimony of the medical examiner, who gave evidence at the inquest, were to the effect that the body had probably been in the water for about a fortnight. On the evening of February 8th, a young woman who gave her age as 21 and who was short and stout with black curly hair came to the workhouse as a tramp for a night's lodging. She gave her name as Eliza Smith and said she was a charwoman from Bristol on her way to Bath. She left the next morning at 11 o'clock and nothing further was heard of her. It is fact-worthy of notice that in the boot of the deceased, three halfpence were found. 
and it is well known to workhouse officials that it is the practice for tramps and others frequenting workhouses to conceal what money they had, either in stockings or boots. Is it a coincidence that at the same time the young woman presented herself for a night lodging at the workhouse, a young man, apparently 23 years old, and giving the same surname Smith, came in with an order for a night's lodging and stopped there as well, but was not in company with the deceased, and though giving the same name, it was said that they were not connected with each other. He had also stated that he was going to Bath and left the next morning. The woman's clothes were kept at the police station in Kingsham. They had been washed, but no marks which might aid in identification had been discovered upon them. A further post-mortem revealed that the stomach was completely empty and the windpipe and bronchial tubes were devoid of water, as were the lungs, meaning that she was dead before she hit the water, but the wounds to her head were inflicted during life. When the clothes were produced at the second inquest by P.C. Baker, they were found to be covered with grease and tar. In the end, the poor woman's identity could not be confirmed either way, and with her description being sent around the country with no success, they were at a loss as to what to do next. A reward was offered, but to no avail. It was considered that one man could not have thrown her over a bridge, but one man could push her off a barge, which would explain the stains on her clothes. The jury returned a verdict of willful murder against a person or persons unknown, and this case still remains unsolved. Hi there, I'm Kyle Sutton. I'm Trisha Campbell. And we're the hosts of My Drunk Movie Theater. Join us every week as we go through the silly things that we wind up getting up to at our job working at a local multiplex. We also talk about all the current events that are happening in the movie world that affect us and affect you as the viewers. Trisha? We also get off topic quite a bit and we'll ramble, so there's that too. Yeah, well, you know, alcohol does that to you. So hit the subscribe button. You can follow us, listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, almost anywhere that your podcasts are available. Back in the day facts. So let's start off with the 2nd of January in 1903, when US President Theodore Roosevelt closed down a Mississippi post office for attempting to force the resignation of black postmistress Minnie Giddings Cox. On the 3rd of January in 1938, the first foreign language broadcast by the BBC was made with the inauguration of the Arabic service. On the 4th of January in 1958, Edmund Hillary arrived at the South Pole as part of the British Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition. And 42 years later in 2000, Catherine Hartley and Fiona Thornwill became the first British women to walk across Antarctica to the South Pole when they arrived after a journey of more than two months. In 871, on the 6th of January, King Ethelred of Wessex and his younger brother Alfred, who later became Alfred the Great, defeated the Danes at the Battle of Ashdown. Also on the 6th of January, in 1841, 
The first registered letters were introduced in the UK at a charge of one shilling per letter, and the penny red stamp replaced the penny black. And on the 7th of January, 1789, the USA held its first national presidential election. And in 1927, the first transatlantic telephone service between London and New York City began with a three-minute call, costing £15. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed making it. And I'd like to say a huge thank you to those who supplied the voices to make the story really come to life. They included Joe Wilson, Molly Jefferson, Steve Shepard and Emma Cleave. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Michelle Gersh, who used my recently set up page on www.co, spelt K-O, hyphen fee, spelt F-I, dot com. Michelle not only sent me a donation, but she also sent a most lovely message saying that I helped keep her going during 2020, and that really made me smile. And my humblest apologies, Michelle, if I've mispronounced your surname. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, which has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you want to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to www.co-fee.com forward slash Backtracker UK and make whatever size donation you want. And I really love hearing from you. You can contact me on Facebook or Twitter by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. My last thank you goes out to all those who are working so hard currently to keep us safe from this awful disease that is ravaging the planet. Thank you, one and all. Now, if you like the music that's currently playing, it's by The Model Folk, and you can find out more about them by going to their website at www.themodelfolk.com. But, until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>